very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is about to ascend to his Father, and he tells him, go make disciples and baptize them. And that's what we're talking about this morning, because baptism is a really, really important symbol. And uh, I haven't spoken about baptism formally in this hour for a long, long time. I realized last week, it's been years, and, and since we're having a baptism, I decided, hey, let's, let's talk about it. And uh, I was thinking about another symbol and how important symbols are. Shortly before 2 a.m. on February 19th, 1945, as the uh, Second World War was mercifully coming to an end, six months away from the end, the U.S. Navy's big guns opened up on the island of Iwo Jima, signaling the beginning of a titanic struggle for uh, a very strategic Japanese-held South Pacific piece of real estate, just one-third the size of, size of Manhattan. After an hour of continual bombardment, awful punishment, uh, the heavy fire was lifted and uh, there was nothing but smoke. In fact, uh, on the ships, about a mile out to the sea, uh, reporters said that it looked like the entire island was on fire. Both Americans aboard their transports and the Japanese in the caves now looked to the skies because the skies were roaring with 110 U.S. planes, which screamed out of the sky and dropped their bombs. After the planes left, once again, the big Navy guns took over and they opened up. Incredibly, this ferocious bombardment, bombardment had very, very little effect on the enemy because they were dug in to the volcanic rock and had been there for a very, very long time. Nonetheless, at 8.30 a.m., the order was given that the landing was to commence. The first wave of Marines headed toward the deadly shore. 110,000 Marines on 880 ships who had sailed for 40 days from Hawaii now began to hit the beaches. But they were immediately bedeviled by the loose volcanic ash. They couldn't get their footing. They couldn't dig in. They couldn't uh, make holes to hide in. Unable to dig foxholes, they were sitting ducks for the hidden Japanese gunners, and heavy fire made it impossible for the landing to happen orderly or for them to move ahead initially. Japanese gunners high atop Mount Sarabuchi, the 550-foot volcanic cone at the island's southern tip, had a commanding view of all the American forces that were landing on the beach. Blockhouses and pillboxes flanked the landing areas, and machine guns crisscrossed the beaches with deadly interlocking fire. Rockets, anti-boat, and anti-tank guns fired from seemingly everywhere, the witnesses said. Confusion and death reigns on the beaches. One historian described the U.S. forces' attack against the Japanese defenses as, quote, throwing human flesh against reinforced concrete. There were no front lines at any single time during the battle. It was fought and won by the inch-by-inch inch tenacity of the Marines. By the time it was all over, 25,851 U.S. servicemen had been killed or wounded, and virtually all the 22,000 Japanese defenders. Four days after the landing, Bill Ganost, a photographer, recorded a picture of six Marines raising an American flag on a makeshift pole. A frozen moment of that scene became the single most, even to this day, 
the single most duplicated photograph in history. And for those men on that hill, during the, the intense heat of that battle, that flag meant something. It meant something really important. It was a symbol of terrible sacrifice that had gone on to get them to the high point on Mount Sanabuchi. And that symbol of those men raising that flag, was, it was so important. It was a, a powerful, powerful moment. One wrote that it was a magical moment. Sergeant Mike Strank, the guy in the back, gave the orders to find a pole, attach a flag, and quote, put her up so that every Marine on this island can see it. Even today, the sons of men who fought there often cannot look at the picture with dry eyes. There was a lot more fighting. There was a lot more sacrifice that was going to go on. Sergeant Strank, along with two others in that photograph before you died, either that day or the next day. But they had come so far. And as the photograph was splashed on newspapers from Caribou, Maine to San Simeon, California, it became apparent, finally, to a lot of people, a lot of people in this country, and a lot of free people around the world, that you know what? This war that had by that time claimed almost 75 million lives was going to end. It was going to end. And the free people around the globe started to say for the first time, hey, I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win this thing. A meaningful symbol. A magical moment. A moving, powerful, powerful symbol. Some of those same feelings were evoked 18 Septembers ago when the hopes of the nation were raised by three soot-covered firefighters raising old glory amidst the ruins of the World Trade Center. Those of you who are alive remember it well. And you know what that said, that picture? We will recover. This has been a God-awful day, but we will recover. See, symbols are powerful. They're meaningful. They're moving. In just a few minutes, we will have the privilege of viewing up close and personal another magical, meaningful, moving moment in the lives of some folks. This one, like those two photographs, fill us with a powerful hope and trust in this Christmas season. It tells us that God has worked in the lives of these individuals and, in fact, is continuing to work right up to this day. It's a joyous time. It's, it's, it's a great symbol that we're going to look at. We will watch as a couple of people express publicly a great eternal change which happened privately some time ago in their hearts before you, their friends, and their families. An outward expression of an inward change that had already begun in their lives. This symbol that we will see, this rite of passage, if you will, is not an insignificant occasion. It really isn't. It's really important. In fact, Jesus thought his own baptism was so important that he walked 60 miles. Imagine, 60 miles for John to baptize him. And what I want to briefly talk to you this morning about is one of the most important rites of passage in the life of a Christian. It's a single initiatory rite called baptism. Now, I, I talk about it this morning, as I said, because as I looked back in my notes, 
it's been a number of years since I've formally addressed it, and I, I thought that, you know, we're having a baptism. Why not do it now? Now, I know that everybody here, or almost everybody here, even if you're a visitor, you know something about baptism. You've seen some sort of baptism or initiation rite. But I felt it was important for us to have a little refresher at this very important time and sharpen our understanding of it for just a few minutes this morning. Baptism is a very, very important initiation rite. It's a little more than that. In fact, it's a lot more than that. But once a person admits that he or she is a sinner and turns to Christ for their salvation, the Bible says that Jesus, not Tim Chicola, not the Crossing Church, the Bible says that Jesus thought that the watching world needed to know that you've made that decision to follow him. In a way, baptism separates the browsers from the buyers, as I like to say. Baptism has always stood as a do you really mean it or don't you? Test for people who move from being someone who are merely interested into someone who is really bought in to this faith. It's one thing to say in the privacy of your own heart that you're a sinner who needs a savior, but it's an entirely other thing to step out of the shadows, to climb into a tank, to stand before a group of people that it seems like for some of them, several million people, if they've never been in front of people before like this, and to demonstrate publicly the fact that what Christ has done on the cross has now been applied to the sin in their lives. That something happened when Jesus died and was resurrected that had great meaning for them. And uh, to say, as they will, that they're dedicating the rest of their lives as best they can to be a Christ follower. It kind of makes you do a gut check because once you go public with anything, it's kind of tough to go back, isn't it? How many times do we hear politicians saying something and, well, I never said that. Well, here's the tape. I mean, it's happened in recent days. Oh, well, I didn't mean that. It's like, uh, sorry, you know what, too late, too late. Once you go public, all right, there's an accountability factor. There's, a, there's an accountability factor when you go public with your faith. In fact, that's precisely one of the functions of baptism, it is to serve as a form of accountability to people. It's asking the question, do you mean it enough to stand in front of family and friends? Or do you want to play it safe and hide in the shadows being kind of a quote-unquote closet Christian, if there is such a thing? I once had a mentor who used to say, secrecy will destroy discipleship, or discipleship will destroy secrecy. And I looked at it a hundred times since he said that. And every time I look at it, I said, yeah, you know what? That's about right. That's about right. Make no mistake about it. Jesus commanded those who claimed to be his followers to prove it by being publicly baptized. And there doesn't seem to be any exceptions to this command. He doesn't say to the rich, you know, you have an exception. You know, you got to pass. Or to the people who are introverted, which is half the population, right, according to statistics, people who find it difficult standing in front of a group, they don't have immunity. He said everybody. And what's more, just before his ascension, he gave his disciples and Christian leaders throughout the ages the specific order to continue to challenge new believers with baptism all throughout history, no matter what culture they came from, no matter what belief system they came out of, if any at all. In many places of the world today, when people decide to follow Christ, they are baptized immediately, and then, and then, henceforth, are shunned by family and friends 
for the rest of their lives. I am not exaggerating when I say that, folks. We've met some. Some are here today. That's how much a baptism can cost a converted Hindu in India or a Muslim in Pakistan or even someone whose family has been transplanted to the United States. Shunning or, or worse, or worse. And yet people are willing to do that today to obey Matthew 28, to obey Christ's command. That's why Jesus said, if you decide to follow me, be careful. Don't do it haphazardly. Think it through. Okay, count the cost before you come following after me. Now, I thought about how I could kind of talk about baptism. And for me, uh, I like question and answers kind of thing. It's just, it's easier for me. I'm not that smart where I could just, you know, get things just packaged perfectly. And I, I like to ask questions and answers in my own mind. Every sermon that I ever preach, it's questions and answers in my mind, even if it doesn't come out like that. So I want to be kind of uh, a little bit more nakedly open today and just ask the questions and then answer them, uh, if, if, if that's okay with you. Five questions that I get asked a lot and have been asked a lot over the years. First question, for instance, does baptism in and of itself save anybody? Does baptism in and of itself mean that, you know what, someone's going to heaven? And I have to tell you this, the Bible says a, renown, a re, 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 renouncing, resounding, resounding no, resounding no. The scripture is abundantly clear that not only doesn't it save, but there are some folks who are, who are trusting in something that, uh, you know what, won't stand the test of time. The only person, the only thing that can save a human being is their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross of Calvary. See, baptism is a public demonstration or a public witness of a private conversion experience that has already taken place. But baptism, as we search, search the scripture, has absolutely no redemptive powers on its own. That's what the scriptures say. I mean, we, we, we filled our tank you know, Bob Zinn yesterday, I heard it running, he filled the tank with water out of the faucet that we drink from the water faucet, and it's just regular water when people get baptized in a lake. It's not a special lake. When I was in Israel a few years back, and we watched, and people got baptized in the Jordan River, and it was very meaningful, but there's nothing special about Jordan River water, I got to tell you. It's not the same river that, that uh, you know, John the Baptist was, was baptizing it and that the water is long gone. It's evaporated. It's been drunk. It's, it's 100,000 million miles down, downstream by, by the time we were there. See, there's nothing miraculous about that. Um, but yet, I know that there are many, there are millions, millions and millions of people around the world who truly believe with all their hearts that they are going to heaven because a religious leader sprinkled water on their head a few days or a few weeks after their birth. Now, I've, I've known folks who you would never want to be your next-door neighbor. They're just, you know, not really nice people to be around who were convinced that they were going to heaven because soon after their birth, their parents made a decision for them which assured them of heaven. But here's the thing, folks. Jesus constantly, constantly, constantly talked of personal faith. He constantly talked of personal decision-making. There is no biblical basis for any other position, and I have been studying the Scripture for many, many years. 
If some of you have been banking on your infant baptism as your ticket to eternal life, and I say this, what I'm about to say, I say it with a heavy heart, I don't say it arrogantly, I say it weeping. If you are banking on your infant baptism as your ticket to heaven, you may be in trouble with that one. You may be in trouble. Salvation comes through a personal relationship with Christ, the Bible says, not through a sacrament. Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward change that has only just begun. Another question that I'm asked a lot. Is it more appropriate to baptize babies or people who are old enough to make a faith decision on their own? Some of the answer I just gave you, to tell you the truth, you know, with that one. But look, let me just tell you, the position here at the crossing is that baptism should only be administered to those who are old enough to recognize a few things. First, they need to be old enough to recognize their sinfulness before a holy God. God is holy, and we are decidedly not holy. Isaiah said, your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. You know that Adam and Eve, Scripture tells us, walked with God in the cool of the evening. And then when they decided they had a better way, and they decided to disobey, the relationship was irrevocably broken at that moment. What hope could they possibly have? Well, if you read in that Scripture in Genesis, first couple of chapters there, you'll see that even then God was preparing and he was planning a way with a relationship that was so broken, so thoroughly severed, could be put back together once again. Someone was going to come who the serpent would wound desperately, but that someone would ultimately crush the head of Satan and kill him forever. See, if someone wants to be baptized, we believe they need to know a few things. First, they need to know that their sinfulness has separated them from God, from their creator. Second thing, they need to be mature enough to understand the substitutionary death of Christ, Christ on their behalf. They need to understand, you know, how someone could die for another, how someone could, you know, win some merit for somebody else because they took their place. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? to bring you to God. God is holy, and when we break his law, we break ourselves. And, 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 and God, knowing that we could never, being unholy people, live with him, said someone has to come, and someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to pay the price for this rebellion, for this sin, for this separation, that had brought, sin that has brought separation. And Jesus Christ the second part of the Trinity, second person, he came and he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died and he rose again on the third day. See, this we believe as Christians. And because he died, we just sang about it. Sabrina was talking about it before the second song. He looks at us differently. We like to say here at the crossing that when God looks at us, when we have placed our faith in Christ to have substituted himself for our sins, that God, when he looks at us, he puts on these Christ-colored glasses. And he no longer sees us. He sees his own dear son. See, his death was a substitutionary death. And God said, by raising him from the dead, it's enough. It's paid in full. 
Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Not his life, but the payment for sin. There's one more thing that people we think need to be old enough to know. They must be responsible enough, I should say, to, to make a solid decision. They need to, need to, need to make to make this Christ and to follow him the rest of their lives. For whatever it's worth, you should know that there is never and there is not a single, a single clear reference in the entire Bible to a baby ever being baptized. And almost every time baptism is mentioned in the New Testament, it's attached to the command to first repent, then humble yourselves before a holy God, and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, and then be baptized. Those kinds of decisions really do require, wouldn't you say, a certain level of maturity. At the crossing, we believe in baby dedications, or really they are their parent dedications, more accurately. They, they are, and those of you who are regulars know what they are, they're kind of brief, meaningful ceremonies, and it's done right at this hour with Christian parents who are uh, walking with God, commit themselves and their little ones to his love, to his watch care, and to his protection. And in those ceremonies, prayers are lifted to God that one day this child will make a personal choice to acknowledge his or her sin and receive the salvation that only Christ can bring. And then one day, decide to go public. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change that's just only begun. Incidentally, we also advise that even though a person was baptized as a baby, in order to comply with the commands of Christ as we understand them in the Bible, he or she should be baptized as a believer, when, you know, when they know they were able to make a personal choice to become a true follower of Christ. I remember very clearly at the age of 12 when I was baptized, it was a memorable and exciting experience in my own life. Well, that question always leads to the next question. What if a person claims to be a Christian but is not interested in baptism or refuses to be baptized? I mean, think about that. What, what, what does that question say? What does it mean? That position has always puzzled me. I'll be honest with you right now. It's always puzzled me a little bit. You know, I think about it, and I was thinking about it this week. It's, it's like, you know, okay, let me see. Um, uh, let me see if I, if I get this 100%. Jesus died an excruciating, painful death on the cross for my sins. He took my sins and punishment on himself, and in return, he offers salvation and eternal love and as a gift of grace and as a, as a gift of love. He did all that for me, and then he asks me to simply admit in front of my family and friends to stand up for the Savior, to go public about the whole deal. Now, I'm thinking in my mind, probably not a good idea to say, I'll take the free gift of salvation, but I'm going to pass on going public about Jesus. Just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. I just think, honestly, let me put it starkly, I think it's a ludicrous position. That position in and of itself is simply ridiculous. True believers, when they really understand, when they really understand the gospel of grace, when they really come to grips with the miracle of forgiveness, 
when they really come to understand what Christ Jesus did for them on the cross, they not only ask Christ to forgive their sins, but usually, almost simultaneously, they yield their entire lives and their time and their talents and their treasures and their resources fully to him. You know what they say? They say, I'll follow you. You know, say the word. I'll do whatever you ask. Baptism, okay, in front of any number of people, the more the better. That's great. To proclaim how blessed I feel to be forgiven, to proclaim how blessed I feel to be adopted into the family of God, bring it on. See, see, that's what a believer, that's what someone whose heart has truly been changed, that's what they say. They say stuff like that. So whenever I hear a person that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm not going to stand up in front of a crowd of people, half of them I don't even know, and give witness to it. I'm not going to go in a tank and have a pastor immerse me under water. I'm not going to do that. See, whenever I sense that kind of spirit in somebody, I, I, just, I just question whether they really get it. I just, I just do. Now, perhaps they are a Christian. I am in no position to judge, and I don't. But I know one thing I can say, and one conclusion I can reach. There's something desperately wrong. There's something desperately wrong. Because, in a way, baptism is one of the first obedience tests of a Christian. And any believer who shakes his fist at the first task that God asks you to take... They need to check their spiritual pulse. Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward change that has only just begun. Now, some people actually take it a little further uh, to me, and they've said things like, well, if I become Christian in, ja- uh, in January or February or March, and I really trust Christ, and I understand the gospel, and I get it, and I get the whole substitutionary death thing, you know, what if I get hit by a truck at the end of March, and, I, you know, the next baptism is not till June. I mean, what, what's going to, you know, what will happen with that? Let, let, me just, let me just say this. I think God knows your heart on that score. He does. He knows if you were looking forward to that day. He knows if you had a heart of compliance. He knows if you had a yielded spirit. God knows. God understands that. It's obviously, you know, those who are concerned with stuff like that, it's never going to be held against you. My sneaking suspicion is that the thief on the cross, if he had the chance, would have been baptized. I think he would have. Another question which I get What's the proper mode of baptism? How do, you, how do you do it? How are you supposed to do it? Well, the, the word baptism su- it itself suggests going down into or going down under water. The word primarily means to dip or to plunge or to submerge or immerse in water. The meaning of this word is overwhelmingly in a single direction of immersion. Kacheo is another Greek word means to pour. Rantazo means to sprinkle. Each of these words have a very distinct meaning, and they're never used interchangeably. In the New Testament, the clear implication is that people would be completely immersed in water when they were baptized. I baptized my own dad shortly before he died, and I couldn't baptize him in water, and I sprinkled him, but you know what? I think God got it. I think it was all good. I think it was okay. Because we couldn't do it the other way. But, but when we can, we do it the way it seems to say we should do it in the New Testament. 
Remember I started by saying the power of a good symbol? Well, there's some pretty strong symbolism in how we baptize and what you're going to see in just a couple of minutes. One of them is the idea of going down under the, under the water and coming up out of the water again, being washed clean from head to toe. That's how thoroughly Christ has forgiven our sin. The prophet Isaiah, writing 800 years before Jesus, said this, Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. You, when you are baptized, are remembering and giving testimony that you have been washed from head to toe, and you come up out of the water, and you never forget that wonderful feeling. Another part of the symbolism and the understanding of baptism is understanding that when Christ died on the cross, he was buried, he was raised again, that you died too. Not, not actually, it's not, you haven't even been born yet, obviously, uh, but spiritually you died. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. You know, back during the Civil War, you could actually pay a sum of money if you were drafted to have another person take your place. Someone who did something like that could legally say, could legally say, I have served my time. You know, the government has no claim on me. I've already served my time. What was owed, I served. You can do that. And uh, when Jesus was on the cross, you know what? And he died, was buried, and was raised up again. You know what? We could look at that and we could say, you know what? That was me. That was, that was you know, the sign over Jesus' head, you know? King of the Jews. Okay, could have been my name. It should have been my name. It was my name. It was your name. He stayed pinned to that cross even though he could have called 10,000 of 10,000 angels down and destroyed all of his persecutors, all of his torturers, and he could have come down. But he stayed pinned on the cross for you, for you. And so that we could one day say, you know what? My debt is paid. It's finished. There's something else to the symbolism, too. It symbolizes, I think, baptism, a death to the old lifestyle and a new direction in life, a new purpose in life. Paul said, wrote to the church at Rome, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That rising up out of the water means things are becoming different. And one day, as Jesus literally rose from the grave, I will rise to live with him forever and ever. See, baptism is an outward symbol of an inward change. That's already begun. One final question that someone might ask is, where should I be baptized? <laughs> like, what's the location? Look, this is not, this isn't from the Bible, this is from me. I'm just telling you. It seems obvious to Christians uh, down through history that most of the time they get baptized where the people know them and love them, where they're already using their gifts, and where they want the people to use their gifts that God has given to them to mature them, to grow them. The people, 
to be baptized with and among the people that love you. You know, the first service, we had a couple of young ladies that were baptized, and one of them just was thanking this church, just thanking the church profusely for building into her, for praying for her, for being there for her family. It was, it was tough, I mean, to keep emotionally stable with all that. It's, I, I almost can't imagine if she, you know, kind of went down the block somewhere to get baptized. This is, this is her family, you know? So, off the records, do it here, okay? Just off the records. <laughs> now, before we move on to the event, I want to ask you something. Very straightforward, just us, okay? Have you been baptized, church, since you've been a believer? Since you've been a believer, have you been obedient to God and be baptized? I know most of you have been baptized as infants. I understand that. But since you've come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ, since you said, yes, Lord, you know, I trust I trust in the, de the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I trust in the fact that, you know what, uh, now because I've trusted Christ, you look at me in a different way. When you see me, you see him. I, I believe all that. Are you willing to say, folks, are you willing to say, yes, Lord, I will gladly walk out of the shadows. I, I stand, I'll stand wherever you want me to stand. I will give public witness and public testimony that I'm one of yours because of what Christ did on the cross. Have you ever done that? We're going to have a, another baptism on Palm Sunday. Wow, that's going to be exciting. Palm Sunday, April 5th, coming up a few months down the road. You'll need to sit in on a, on a single class so that uh, you, you're sure what you're doing, and we're sure that you know what you're doing. But, uh, uh, you know, if God speaks to your heart, start looking, you know, at the announcements. We'll be talking about that next month probably. So I want to ask you one more time. If you have not been baptized as a believer, are you willing to take that stand the same way these two are? Symbols are very important. If they are effective... They should communicate a story. Baptism in the life of a believer communicates the greatest story ever told. The gospel story. The story of sinful men and women who had decided to go their own way. And a God who loved them so much that he was not willing to let them keep walking off the eternal cliff into damnation. Was never willing, never desiring to see that happen. So he sends his son who pays the price and that we can be forgiven. That is the story of the ages. And when that happens and you give testimony as they're about to do, it's, it's a magical moment. It's a powerful moment. It's a cool moment, I got to tell you, right now. Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward change that has only just begun. It is meaningful. It is moving. I guess you could say, as someone once said, it's a magical moment. The cross of Christ to everyone looking from afar 2,000 years ago was the end. To disciples who had followed him, who he had told the glorious kingdom was coming, that they would be rulers in this kingdom, it was the end. It was the end of a dream. 
It was the end of their lives. They had left everything to follow him, everything. And it was all over. What they didn't know, it was just the beginning. It was merely the beginning. The best was yet to come. Because three days later, he rose up out of the grave so that we, his people, can say, you know what? I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win.